Thanks, Mark. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 33. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 33. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what your body, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. And um, let me add my welcome to that you've already received. And just say, if it's your first time here today, um, you're here on a very exciting day. And you're probably wondering, what are the odds? You know, there's 52 Sundays in the year. They only talk about money on one Sunday of the year, and I've come on that Sunday. Just want to say, um, it's great to have you with us. And I want to speak today about how to seize the moment, how to make the most of the opportunity which is before us as a community and as a church. This is an exciting time, even the last couple of weeks we've seen a really significant number of people place their trust in Jesus for the first time in their lives. We've seen miraculous healing. Uh, we're seeing God draw people to himself. We're seeing a fresh desire for intimacy with Jesus and repentance. And we are seeing a passion for Jesus at every level in our church, every generation in our church. Very moving in the worship, see someone who I know is uh, in their 90s worshiping, hands outstretched, and also to see someone who I think is about nine days old. Um, and I assume they were worshipping, their hands were outstretched. And, uh, and also to see every generation in between, our 20s and 30s on fire, our students desperate to shift the narrative about their generation, our youth and our kids group exploding with joy. And I kind of was feeling this week, what are we waiting for? You know, what, we're seeing lots of the things that we spend lots of our lives praying for. What are we waiting for? This is a moment where I feel that we kind of have to respond to what God is up to and say, look, God is doing something and we've got to follow and we've got to back what Jesus is doing. And this is an opportunity, I think, for each of us to invest 
in the ministry of Jesus. And that's why today is significant, because I'm convinced that this is a huge opportunity for us to do that and to give to God out of what he's entrusted us to do. But also because I'm convinced that Jesus' teaching on money is every bit as life-giving and liberating and transforming and wise as his teaching in every other area of life. And it's often as we respond to Jesus' teaching in this area that we see really significant things start to happen. And I appreciate it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, there's, if, if you were catching me a number of years ago and I was sitting where you're sitting now and someone had said, you know, who, 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 who loves Jesus? I'd have been like, yes, I love Jesus. Who, lo- who loves Jesus to worship Jesus? I'd have been like, yes, I love to worship Jesus. Who wants Jesus to be Lord of their lives? I'd have been like, yes, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. Who wants Jesus to be Lord of their finances? I'd have been like, whoa, is that a hypothetical question? Um, <laughs> let's just define the terms. What do you mean by Lord? What do you mean by finances? I think I would have found it a little bit difficult because I thought of my money as, well, my money. You know, I'd earned it. It gave me a measure of control in a complex and uncertain world. And I would start with the best of intentions, but without me realizing it, money had got a grip on my heart. And it's okay to have money. It's okay to have a lot of money, but it's not okay for money to have you. And I need wisdom because I'd lost sight that everything I had was a gift from God. I'd worked hard. Yeah. I'd had some success. Yeah. But he was the one who had made me. And he had given me the opportunities. And he had opened the doors to me. And he had protected and shielded me in the difficult days when I almost blew it all. And he had guided and helped me in the good days and blessed me with resources. And I have found, just to say, I have found Jesus' teaching in this area highly practical very helpful and very challenging. And it's transformed my day-to-day life and released things that I thought only money could give, greater freedom, greater joy, greater peace. And I'm convinced if you want to live a full and thriving life, then you have to follow and take seriously what Jesus is teaching here. And the first thing we see in this passage is how important it is to watch your flow. And I still remember uh, when I started working, I was 22 years old, uh, Beth and I had just moved to a new city and we hadn't, I hadn't had a lot of money growing up and I was trying, feeling we've just got to survive. We lived in this tiny, tiny flat in this subdivided house and on one side, actually below us, we had a number of art students living below us who smoked what I can only describe as industrial quantities of cannabis. I mean, just like... I, <laughs> At one stage, I was thinking, can you get high on the smell of this stuff as it comes through the floorboards? It was so strong. And then on the other side of our flat was a young emerging uh, rapper um, who had just won his first Mercury Music Prize called Dizzy Rascal. And so in the day, we had the kind of pungent smell of cannabis. And in the night, we had the emergent sounds of grime music booming through our walls. It was a perfect first family home, really. And, And... We didn't have much money, and I thought I had a good grip on money. You know, I'd given as a student, I'd given as a law student, and I thought, you know, establish the principle early, get the big blocks together in your life. I thought I'd be absolutely fine. Got no issue when it comes to money. And then as my income increased, I realized I really didn't know how to handle this at all. And I was immersed in a culture which prioritized the pursuit of money, and with it, the pursuit of status and wealth. And I had felt called to shape that culture. But quite quickly, I realized that that culture was shaping me. 
And without me realising it, I was changing. And I was thinking more and more about how I could get more and more money and how I could get more and more resources. And, but it didn't make me feel happier. I felt less happy. It didn't make me feel more peaceful. I felt more anxious. And without it realising it, I just started to grip tighter and tighter the resources we did have and started to think, you know, how can I earn more? How can I make more? How can I get more? And I was seeing my whole life. I remember one time sitting at my desk, just calculating what I could earn over the next five years. I was seeing my whole life through the lens of money rather than seeing money and my whole life through the lens of my faith. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The reason Jesus talks about money is not because money is the most important thing. It's because you are important and it reveals what is most important to you. Jesus wants you. You're Jesus' passion. Your passion is what you're prepared to suffer for. That's what the word passion means. Pasque, to suffer. Your passion is what you're prepared to suffer for. Jesus was willing to suffer for you. He wants you. You're the one he came for. You're the person he came for. And Jesus knows your attitude to money is one of the most important things about you because it reveals your priorities. It reveals your hopes. It reveals your fears. It reveals your desires. It reveals your longings. When I worked in litigation, we used to have a phrase that we'd trot out in every case. Don't forget to follow the money. Follow the money. Because when you followed the flow of money in a case, it revealed the hidden motivations and often the hidden actions of the key people in the trial. It revealed what was really going on and what really mattered to people. If you want to know what you value, look at your bank statement. It won't lie. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. And wherever your heart is, there your treasure will flow. And people's treasure generally flows in a number of different directions depending on their values. So um, let's just uh, draw out a few things here. Da, da, da. So um, here we are. So, um, so for some people, uh, your heart might rest in status. And if your heart rests in status, then uh, it's just natural for you to kind of put your money into status. So, uh, so that expresses itself in a number of different ways, in a number of different contexts. Where I grew up in Luton, uh, it meant you invested your money in cars. So uh, particularly, like, if you could get a Ford Fiesta which was lowered, had a body kit and tinted windows, you were the one. So lots of people kind of invested their money in that. I remember when I went to Cambridge, it wasn't cars, it was books. Some people had more books in their houses than they had bricks in their houses. They were like, <laughs> let me put my money into books. When I became a lawyer, it wasn't either of those things, it was suits. I still remember turning up night before a trial, the solicitor and all the other teams saying, Steve, this guy is a nightmare. He's sacked a number of his previous barristers. It's going to be a really difficult game court. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do my best. I turned up. I looked at him. He looked at me. Everything went well. The case went well. He was really happy about me. I got to the end of the day. I thought, I must have blown him away with my superior advocacy. All these other lawyers didn't come close. I've nailed it in court. He was happy. He shook my hand. He looked me in the eye and he said, I knew that you were a great barrister the second I saw your suit. I, like, <laughs> I went into a tailor's the next week. I said, take all my money. Give me as many suits as you can get. So for some people, it's status. For some people, it's safety. And for you, you, you just naturally worry about money. And it's good to be a good steward. It's good to, you know, to, to have 
precautions. It's good to have insurance, all those things. But, but you have like a rainy day fund for the rainy day fund. You have a backup account for the backup account. You have security on the security. You are always concerned that you're not going to have enough. And a friend of mine who was a uh, financial advisor, he says, he's still, your heart rests in safety. You just want to be secure. And this couple came in to see him. He said, you okay? He said, yeah, we're really worried. He said, why? And he said, we're worried we don't have enough to, to live our life. And he looked at him and he said, you have enough to live seven lives. He said, you're absolutely fine. Stop worrying. So for some people, it's safety. For some people, it's surplus. Like You, you don't mind taking risks. It's different for you. You'll take risks because you know ultimately without risk, there's no reward. And what matters to you, money is just a way of keeping score. So you just want to know you've got more and that you're on an upward trajectory and that you've got more. So you're happy to invest in this new venture or this new project or this new business because you're just about, your heart rests most naturally in surplus. It's just a way of you kind of judging yourself and kind of working out how you're doing. You're drawn to surplus. For some people, it's like satisfaction. You love experiencing life. You're like, life is short. Let's have fun. You know, you get FOMO from FOMO. You know, you're kind of like, if there's a new gig or a new holiday or a new something else, you're like, I've got to be there. And ultimately, it doesn't matter where your heart is resting, but the thing is, wherever your heart is resting, your money will most naturally flow. But Jesus says, don't store up treasure where moth and vermin can destroy and decay. Seems like those very things in which we rest our hearts are themselves inherently vulnerable and fragile. So, you know, status is fine, but one say you've got to let it go. You know, safety, well, you, you think you can insure yourself against everything, but sometimes you can't. You know, oh, I'll always have more, I'll always have more, I'll always have some more, but then actually it, it's like drinking salt water and expecting it to quench your thirst. It's never quite enough. Satisfy, well, sometimes those things, they don't satisfy you for as long as you think. And it's almost like these aren't bad things. There's nothing wrong with these things. But it's like we're attempting to satisfy eternal longings with temporary things. And it doesn't quite work. But there's another way. Because you know, all treasure ultimately asks you to lose yourself to find it. But Jesus is the only treasure who gave himself to find you. And you see, when you place your trust in Jesus, you realise that he's given you a status which is greater than any you could spend your life building. You're a much-loved son, a much-loved daughter of the Most High God. You know, it, when you see the price he paid to win you, you can trust he's taken hold of you and he's never going to let go of you, so you are eternally secure. When you realise that Jesus promised you life and life in all its fullness, abundant life, you can't improve on that by getting more things. And he says, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll be satisfied. When you rest yourself and rest your heart in Jesus, Jesus said, seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Thank you so much.
Jesus says you've got a choice. You can either store up treasure on earth, which you can't keep, or you can store up treasure in heaven, which you can't lose. You can invest what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. And what I love is that even secular authorities are waking up to this now. Harvard Business School uh, did a review uh, a number of years ago. They did a study. You know, they were testing the principle that money can't buy happiness. And they were like, let's test it. Why not test it? Maybe it can. And so they did a study on, on whether money actually made you more happy. And they worked out this extraordinary principle that after the first, you know, so many thousand you need just to live, actually the extra amounts didn't increase your happiness much at all. And in fact, they excluded every way of those extra amounts making you happy. No, that isn't really making a difference. That isn't really making a difference. That isn't really making a difference, except for one. There was one thing you could do with the extra money in your life that might gain you happiness. And do you know what that was? Give it away. That was the only thing Harvard Business School said. I mean, I'd say, Jesus has said it. You'll say, Jesus, Jesus. Harvard Business School said it. Maybe there's something in it. Maybe he's got a point. 2,000 years later, they catch up with it. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And then the Christians came along and they gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. It's what someone has called financial promiscuity. We know we're so known and we know we're so loved that this doesn't have a hold on us in the way it does with other people. And it frees us to be financially promiscuous, to be irrationally generous. Because when your earthly, eternal perspective shapes your earthly decisions, you get the best of both worlds. Actually, the Harvard Business School study said that for every $500 you gave, it had the positive impact on your life of spending $10,000. Extraordinarily greater return in terms of well being and peace and joy in people's lives. But it's still hard. I used to see it as an obligation, and so I was put off from it, and I didn't realize what a privilege it is to be enjoyed. You know, to invest in a strategic, significant endeavor at an hour of great need in our church and our community, but also just the worship of being able to invest in the ministry of Jesus. I think, what an extraordinary thing. Who am I? What have I done with my life? Really, how would I ever earn the privilege of being able to invest in the ministry of Jesus? But I still had all these questions. So I used to, I used to think like, well, I can't really start giving because I'm not sure how much to give. And I still remember sitting down with my pastor in East London and I said to him, look, Tony, it's really, it's really difficult. It's so complex. He said, what's complex? And I said, wow, you know, how much are you supposed to give? Is it supposed to be less than 10%, less than a tithe, or more than 10%. And even if you decide you've got to give 10%, is it 10% on you know, this financial year or this calendar year? Because that could make a difference. Or is it, you know, is, it, is it 10% on income or is it 10% on assets? That makes a difference as well. So it's too complicated. He looked at me in the eyes. He said, Steve, are you asking what's the least you can give and still be a generous giver? I said, yes. <laughs> and he was so kind. He just said, Steve, just try something. Just start somewhere. Stretch the muscle and see what happens. And I did, and I'm so thankful that we did. And then tithing, you know, 
The Old Testament refers to tithing. It's, it's a principle, a really powerful principle that you give the first 10% of your income as a way of demonstrating to yourself that this is all a gift from God and I want to put God first in how I order my life. And the New Testament refers to tithing and approves of it, but like lots of things from the Old Testament, the New Testament expands on it. It says it's not just enough to give that. You want to give your whole life as a response to God. But I, Beth and I have found it the most helpful principle we found in life, if we leave it vague, uh, we always come in quite low. Whereas we just have that as a guide, it helps establish something in our lives and it makes a real difference. To be honest, there's been times where I could tithe and I wouldn't even notice it going out of my bank account. It wasn't nearly enough for me to give. Uh, and maybe you're in a position like us right now where to, to tithe is like a real sacrifice. And um, it, it, it really is a stretch to do that. And I know there will be people at this time who are struggling in our community as a church. We have, for some time, been committed as a church to supporting those in our city who are vulnerable and in need. We have a, a, an act, uh, a ministry, a charity, which comes alongside, is running a, a three-course meal today for the most vulnerable in our community, in our broader community as well. We've always done that and we're going to do more and more of that in the future. But we've also felt stirred over the last few months to put together a little fund just to support those within our actual church community who are finding things very, very difficult at the moment, either because of illness or because of a serious shock in their lives. And we're going to do that. Generous people have enabled us to do that at the moment. That's something we feel really passionate about. It, it might be that, like us, it's a real sacrifice to give at the moment. But then there are other times... Well, I believed, well, it doesn't make a difference. It's sometimes because my capacity to give was relatively small. And I thought, even if I stretch, it doesn't seem like much. But then I realized, out of a, a little, God can do a lot. And what it establishes in my heart is as important as the difference it makes. Great works of faith are founded on small acts of obedience and God often entrusts spiritual blessings to those who are faithful with material resources so if it's your first time you've never given to the church before maybe you became a Christian in the last few months lots of people here who have I just encourage you to go for it great friends of mine uh, Nick and Nita turned up at church um, a few years ago and it was their first time ever at church and their brother and sister they ran a small business and they'd never heard anything about Jesus before just turned up at church because why not try it? And it was a gift day. Can you imagine a worse day to try church for the first time? And at the end of the day, at the end of the service, they looked at each other and they said, this is exciting. I think we should give to this. They hadn't placed their trust in Jesus yet. They hadn't been members of the church yet. But they were so moved by what was happening, they wanted to take a step and to buy into it. So it might be you want to start giving today. Maybe you want to give a one-off gift. Maybe today you want to start regular giving. That would be a big thing for you today. Maybe today you want to try tithing today. But there's also been times when my capacity to give has been so large, I thought I might swamp the church with my resources and give it a whole new set of problems. And um, so I thought, oh no, I won't really do that. But I think just to encourage you, your spiritual need to give generously to the church is far more important than the church's financial need to receive it. It's what I found. And trust that God has brought you here for a purpose. We see in Scripture and through church history that every move of God is accompanied by the sacrifice of the many, people giving sacrificially, 
and then gospel patrons who have been given really significant resources by God are able to accelerate the ministry by investing in it and to advance the kingdom. It's not an accident you're here. It's an opportunity to shift the dial. And this is a key moment in our church. It's a key moment in our city, our nation. Just seeing so many people come to faith over the last two weeks. Uh, We want to invest in our rising generation. I, I feel the generation that's rising up at the moment is more open to the gospel than any I have seen in years and years and years. And in such a difficult time, our children and youth have suffered so much over the last three years. There's this kind of joy and enthusiasm about faith. There is this huge opportunity to disciple those who are raising up and see many more come to faith. I think it's extraordinary that we have 276 children in all dates kids. We want to invest in them. We want to give them the best possible opportunity to build friendships and to build their faith in a way that will sustain them for the rest of their life, to make lifelong friendships that will grow their faith. We want to invest in our youth. I have such a burden at the moment for our youth to grow and to be invested in and to be discipled. I just have this sense that God is going to do something really powerful in that group of young people. I have this three words going around my head. You remember in the 2008 financial crisis, There was runs on the bank. There was chaos in the markets. And then Mario Draghi stood up and he said three words that changed everything. What are you going to do? Whatever it takes. What are we going to do to meet the opportunity of investing in this rising generation? Whatever it takes. What are we going to do to see our children set on fire for Jesus? Whatever it takes takes? What are we going to do to reach out to those in our city who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Whatever it takes. We want to invest in this rising generation. We want to rise to the challenge of the moment because you could look at the last few years and say, what a disaster. So much complexity, so much cultural complexity that our youth are facing, our students are facing, our young adults are facing. And yet there's this hunger to know Jesus. And I look at those things together, the cultural complexity and the hunger to know Jesus, and I say those are just the sort of things you would see when God will move powerfully within a generation and impact a city, a nation, a church. We have an opportunity to see many set on fire for God, to see them fearless, to see the tide turned. We want to see a movement of youth across our city. We want to see our young adults passionate about discipleship. We want to see people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s set on fire with love for Jesus Christ. I love that we've got over 250 students at our church. We want to see every one of those students on fire with the gospel and going out to tell people about Jesus. Just think of the chain reactions. We we baptised a student in January. And one of her atheist friends who came to the baptism service has already, since January, placed her trust in Jesus Christ. That's a chain reaction. And when you invest in that, you start the possibility of a chain reaction. I don't know who invested in the children's ministry at the church I grew up in. I can't wait to meet them in heaven and say, hi. I don't know who invested in the youth work so we could have a youth worker. But someone did. I can't wait to meet them and say, hi. I almost lost my faith as an undergraduate student. But someone invested in that ministry so that I could restore my faith and fall in love with Jesus all over again. I cannot wait to meet that person and say thank you. You know, we want to care for the least, the last, the lost. We want to care for the young and the young at heart. We want to invest because their potential is vast. This is a church which has 
impacted the nations. And we sense God moving powerfully again in our time. In 1740, there were six people who went to St. Paul's Cathedral on Easter Day. Six. There were 280 crimes which you could be executed for on a statute book including stealing a loaf of bread. Children as young as five were working in the mines. Culture was falling apart. And a relatively tiny group of people, most of whom were praying within 100 metres of this building, said, not on our watch. We are going to return to seek and pray and ask that God would move in our time. And something happened through that group of people that shook the foundations of this nation and shook the foundations of the continents. Millions of people in the next five to 10 years came to a living faith in Jesus Christ and the whole arc of continents has shifted irreparably ever since then. It's transformed the character of nations. A handful of students praying, a handful of young people set on fire for Jesus Christ. Just think what could happen as we give our little, we give our lot, we invest in what Jesus is doing and say, Jesus, we want to worship you. We're so grateful that you've entrusted us with resources. And we want to respond and invest in your ministry. We want to invite people to encounter Jesus. We want to equip people to be disciples. And we want to inspire people to transform their workplaces, their businesses, their families, their communities. In Jesus' name, amen.